0: Hi, this is Mandy Griffin and I'm Katie Swalwell and welcome to our dirty laundry stories of white ladies making a mess of things and how we need to clean up our act. Hi guys, welcome back to our dirty laundry. It's
1: Mandy and it's Katie. Long time childhood white lady friends that come yeah. to talk to you about white women in history being awful.
0: Yeah, hi. That's fun.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we promise. If this is your first time, welcome. And if you're a long time listener, welcome back. It's we were just talking about how this fall has just felt like a smack in the face every day. I don't know. It just this week especially something has just been off in the in the moon and the stars. I'm not
0: sure, but. Yeah, twenty twenty one is almost over, and I feel like I don't even have twenty twenty processed yet. No, never- oh for
1: sure. I feel like twenty twenty pushed us down into like a giant mud puddle and laughed at us, and then twenty twenty one just ran by and gave us a wedgie, and then just like kept running. <laughs> Ugh. Uh,
0: I hope twenty twenty two
1: is like someone nice who comes by and helps us off and like helps us out of the puddle, gives us a rag to dry down. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> It would be nice.
0: It would be nice. The we good can have Samaritan hope. year.
1: Yeah. I, I'm not hopeful. I look at the like what the upcoming midterm elections and I'm definitely very discouraged with everything and everyone and all of everything,
0: basically. But that's just where I'm at. Let's talk
1: about eugenics.
0: <laughs> <sighs> yes. Yeah, so we've been talking about I think we've mentioned this a couple of times. We're gonna talk today about some of the eugenics outcomes, um, experimentation, things that happened in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. Um, We have brought it in a little bit to other episodes, but it kind of needed its own synopsis. So Mm -hmm. this may be a shorter episode just because it's not an entire whole long form thing. But like Katie said, we always say things are going to be shorter and then (laughs) they end up not being shorter.
1: (laughs) It was like too much
0: to fit into our other things, but maybe not a whole hour. Probably not. Well,
1: anyway. I anyway. I really have been looking forward to learning more about this. I know hopefully people have listened to our episode last week, our interview with Wayne Ow, who was talking to us about how eugenics has shown up in education. Uh, really, the rest of this season has been talking about eugenics as it has shown up in reproductive rights and, and reproductive issues. But really, our very first season looking at voting rights and the white suffragists eugenics was there the whole time and we just maybe didn't know to call it that
0: oh yeah yeah because we hadn't learned all of these details yet and in talking about puerto rico today we're going to get back to some suffragist involvement in that too so um let's do it. yeah it's all intertwined intertwined together so i had to go back and look at like my history of Puerto Rico yeah. in general, yeah, because I can't remember where I put my phone down two minutes ago. Let alone like <laughs> how Puerto Rico became a territory of the United yeah. States. <laughs> totally, or I, I, I mean, remember it all.
1: Hey, I will give you credit for knowing that. I mean, I think there are a lot of of U.S. citizens, people living in the United States of America, who don't know that that Puerto Rico has a special relationship to the United States and is considered a territory of the U.S. Yeah. I
0: don't probably think not. Have you ever that. been to Puerto Rico? Oh
1: God, no, I would love to go. My sister-in-law oh. is Puerto Rican. They got married in Puerto Rico. One of my very best friends is Puerto Rican from the Bronx and I've like promised her I'm going to go with her. So hopefully that will happen soon. Once we feel safe to travel. Have you ever
0: been? Yes. I've been twice actually. Ooh. It's lovely. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorite places. I would mm-hmm. go there every year on vacation if i could choose to do (laughs) it so yeah it's so great we actually we went there a couple of years ago for josh my husband's 40th birthday and then i had been before like prior to being married there's a gorgeous island it's really pretty um Mm. but yes it is a u.s territory Do you remember any of of how it became a U.S. territory? Oh, my gosh. You're going to put me 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 on the spot. Show me up. Because I I, never know anything when you ask me. I'm always like, what? (laughs) It's like those nightmares where you're being tested on a class that you never went to.
1: (laughs) I still have... (laughs) Oh, I definitely still have those dreams. I think especially since we've been doing this and it's like our childhood has been just more in the forefront of my mind that I have constant dreams that I haven't actually graduated from high school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay. Okay. Puerto Rico. So here's, here's what I'm my best guess. I'm just willing to put myself out on a limb here. I want to say that it had to do with the Spanish-American War in like 1898. You're so good.
0: You're cheating. Well, Where taught, is this? Somewhere? I'm not cheating. I taught history. If okay, I good. didn't know some of this,
1: that would be, it would be like so, me asking you like what arm bones are connected to each other. I have no idea. Like a tibia, is a tibia involved? in your leg, but. Yeah. The, I, I would know nothing so, and you would know all of it. Okay, So good. that's.
0: Just the different professional backgrounds we have. Totally Uh, fine. Yes. You're so right, though. Even about the year, 1898, Spanish-American War. Yay. So, So apparently the U.S. Army occupied part of Puerto Rico in that time because it was previous to Mm -hmm. us taking it over. It was colonized by Spain, so it was a Spanish territory. And then in the Treaty of Paris that ended the Spanish-American War later in 1898, um, that is when the Spanish ceded Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines, I believe, to the United States, and they became United States territories and still are today. Um. Do you know a shout out to one of the best books I've read in a really long time?
1: I've probably mentioned this before because I'm kind of obsessed with it. It's called how to hide an empire oh. by Daniel Mowar, I think is how you say his last name. I M M E W A H R. Something like that. It's all about how the United States so often gets depicted in maps as like the lower 48 and mm-hmm. maybe the lower 48 with Hawaii and Alaska tossed in. But in schools, et cetera, it's almost never depicted as the empire it actually is. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we have these territories all over. And so it goes through the history of the different territories and the current like range of statuses that different places have. It's absolutely fascinating. So how to hide an empire,
0: check it out. Okay. So i writing it down because I'm going to look Ooh. it up. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't really, maybe you can teach us this from your history background. What does it even <laughs> mean? Like that a, that some place is a territory. Like what do they get from the United States and what do they get? Like, do people pay taxes to the U S if they live in Puerto Rico? I know they don't have representation as far as like Congress goes and they don't, but they do vote in presidential. No. Do they vote in presidential elections? See, I know now we need to look all of this up. Okay. (laughs) I'm looking this up right now. Okay. I will tell you while you look this up, let me tell you what, what happened. So in 1898, U.S. took over in Puerto Rico. Two years later, in 1900, they had their first U.S. governor um, over the island. His name was Charles Allen. And he was quoted as saying that there were too many laborers and poor people on the island and not enough, quote, men of capital that were there. (laughs) Uh-huh. Um, cause <laughs> I think Puerto Rico's yeah. main, it was an agrarian society. It's main crop was, um, sugarcane. And so most of the indigenous mm-hmm. people that lived there were sugarcane farmers. So good old Charles, um, starts bringing corporations in and then these corporations start displacing the, um, original sugarcane, like local farmers and pushing them out of the land. And starting corporate farming of sugarcane, so by 1930, I think it said 80 percent of the land was owned by two percent of the population, which were all of you know the rich white people from the U.S. that came in wow. and took it over. Wow. And we had displaced seventy percent of Puerto Rico's native population by that time. Oh my god!
1: Yeah. Well, that's a lot. I, I do have some stats that maybe segue from that here. Okay. This is from a rockthevote.medium.com uh, me, article. It says nearly 5 million people, residents of Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and other U.S. territories. I actually lived in D.C. for many years, and it is really frustrating to live in a place where you don't have representation. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are all taxpaying U.S. citizens that have fundamentally different voting rights and representation in government than residents of the 50 states. It says, similar to states, territories Mm. are subnational administrative divisions overseen by the U.S. government. Um, In fact, many current states started off as territories. It currently, uh, the U.S. currently occupies 16 territories, including Puerto Rico, you mentioned Guam, the Northern Mm -hmm. Mariana Islands, American Samoa, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and they have permanent inhabitants who are U.S.- citizens. It sounds like they pay um, federal taxes and can travel freely within the United States, um, but do not have representation despite contributing billions of dollars in taxes. Each U.S. federal or at the U.S. federal level, each territory elects a non-voting member in the House of Representatives, and they have no representation in Senate, and they can participate In presidential primaries through the political parties but they don't have representation in the electoral college Mm -hmm. um so that's cool yeah Yeah. that's how that works so i i mean what they get i guess like some of the protections and travel abilities and probably like work
0: you know like you can move around and get jobs and not have to apply for a visa or whatever i'm imagining yeah, and they do. They must, because we'll talk about this. I mean, they get funding, government funding for government programs, um, and that's yeah, where some I would of just this like comes to
1: in. Point out that, like in hurricane time, this is you know my point from before that that a lot of U.S. like lower forty-eight people don't know that Puerto Rico is in fact part of the United States. They're mm-hmm. jerks about like, oh, we're donating money to hurricane relief. When it's like, well, that's not what, how you describe it. If we were, you know, Helping the federal out. government was giving money to Texas, you right. know? Right. And the, just the, I don't know. It just seems like, yeah, maybe yeah. they're like a low priority. And, and I'm sure that there are military purposes. Like all of these places have military bases. Yeah. That they're strategically located. Yeah. Around yeah. the globe. So, yeah.
0: And I know okay. there are conversations currently about, you know, getting voting rights to places like puerto rico or granting them statehood and that kind of thing yeah but there's also arguments from um indigenous people in puerto rico that say we don't want statehood we don't want we would like to be our own sovereign nation Mm -hmm. like just Mm -hmm. let us let us go go completely we don't want to become part of the united states we want you to leave kind of a thing so Um, interesting Yeah. yeah Yeah. yeah. So it's really interesting. And, and so in the early like through the early 1900s, Puerto Rico was still like one of the poorest places in the Caribbean. Um and so they put all of the the legislature passed all of these incentives to try to encourage corporations to come over there um to invest in the economy. So it's kind of the same bullshit that goes on today that they like exempt them from paying corporate taxes so that they will go and- over. Um, and it
1: makes me think like it's not really about investing in that economy. It's about like, Hey, open for business. Here's a place to exploit. Yeah, come exploit like, all of our resources,
0: our people, our everything. Um, mm-hmm. and so. This population that got displaced in Puerto Rico in the early 1900s, um, had like very few options for what they could do afterwards. When they were, um, on the sugar plantations owned by the corporations, they could work and receive 37 cents a day, which, you know, even get taking into account inflation is still garbage. Um, They could Mm -hmm. totally move from their more uh, remote lands and try to move closer to San Juan and get industrial jobs there. Or they Mm -hmm. could migrate over to mainland US, which was actually Mm -hmm. highly encouraged. There were like contract labor recruitment centers, basically exploiting the population for very cheap labor in the United States. They -hmm. would say, you can come and immigrate to the United States and we'll let you come over but you have to work through these labor centers and then you get farmed out to be super cheap labor to companies mm. in the United States. Um, mm. And what I read is that nearly 50% of the population of Puerto Rico left and came to the U S under those programs. Mm. Mm. Super crazy. So this is everything that's going on during that time. Um, so they're having all of these companies move in. They're displacing all of these people that were already poor, making them even poorer. But of course, in our like white supremacist, American capitalist ways, we decide to blame that not on what all of the companies and corporations and American colonialism is doing in Puerto Rico, but on the Puerto Rican people themselves, and specifically mm-hmm. on the women and their baby making womb factories. Um mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. say, oh, Puerto Rico is an extremely poor and impoverished com- country because you women keep on pumping out babies. And that's what we need Ugh. to do to fix things is stop that from happening. Because um, mm-hmm. the average family size in Puerto Rico was like five to six people. Um, mm-hmm. And they determined that was just too much. Um, so the interesting thing is in the early 1900s, a lot of birth control clinics and um, birth control related um, services and literature, even with outlawed it as part of the Comstock laws, like not being able that we've discussed before, like not being mm-hmm. able to publish or mail things or um, publicly advocate for things like birth controls considered some sort of pornographic, whatever that had to be stopped. And so wasn't allowed mm-hmm. in the United States, but From the early 1930s in Puerto Rico, sterilization and birth control was allowed. It was passed. um, And it was purely a function of them trying to decrease the population in Puerto Rico. So they're saying... We don't talk about these things on the mainland, but for these people in this island that are poor, let's get them on birth control. So by 1934, there were actually already 67 birth control clinics on the island. That, that stat
1: like disproportionately just seems staggering, like per capita. And for the size of the
0: island. Puerto Rico is
1: oh approximately 3 times the size of America. Yeah,
0: Puerto Rico is about 3500 miles squared, which is about the same size geographically as Connecticut. So there were 67 okay. birth control clinics on an island the size of Connecticut wow. in 1934. Yeah. And this yes. was yes. yeah, That's it's a lot. lot. It's <laughs> a lot. It was funded mm-hmm. um By FDR's programs um, at the time, the there was one called the Puerto Rican Relief Administration. And so they funded most of these birth control clinics. And then in 1936, a private corporation that I tried to find more information on who was behind it and if it was still operational or where it came from, but I couldn't. It's called the Maternal and Child Care Health Association. They opened up 23 more birth control clinics on the island. So there's just like a birth control clinic on every corner.
1: What I'm struck by just is, is thinking about the latest court decisions about, you know, access to reproductive rights and to abortion specifically that the number of clinics, I don't know, it's like less than 20 in the state of Texas. I, I should look up exactly what it is, but just to think about like that, like less, maybe a couple of dozen clinics in the entire state of texas and that this much smaller place had over 60 and not and were they the same services like are these places where women like what is birth control at
0: this point because is it like condoms like yep that and then like um foam like spermicides oh like a spermicide were they getting abortions also
1: at this clinic was that something not that i read was it
0: all like preventative but i would assume i don't know I would have to look more. None of the stuff you that I read was, it was abortion. It was mostly like birth control either through birth control, the, the foam caps, spermicide type things. And then the birth control pill didn't come until later, which we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes because it wasn't around okay. like early in the 1930s.
1: I am picturing like wooden underwear with like a pulley system that you have like a crank and it like <laughs> like opens up a hole in the underwear just like old fashioned Yeah they were just though, but I know that they were just
0: how it works. selling like <laughs> The metal, what are the things with like the metal chastity, lock, chastity belts? belts? <laughs> just lock, oh lock it up. That's, they were just passing uh, them out. Um, a lot of these clinics though were actually located like at the um, farms and factories where these people were working. So they were mm-hmm. part of like the corporate system as well. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of um, textile mm-hmm. and needlework factories that a lot of the women worked at. And huh. the clinics were there and they were highly encouraged slash coerced into going to those clinics and getting on birth control. And the women mm-hmm. who consented, quote unquote, um, and participated in mm-hmm. those programs were then favored in the factory somehow by given like higher um, paying jobs, like more managerial type jobs, all of that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. if they would participate in the... Family planning clinics that they offered there. Mm. Um, and then, of course, sterilization was also one of the main things that they used because there weren't a lot of options for non permanent birth control at that point in time. And so Um, sterilizations were heavily utilized. And this was funded mainly by our friend Clarence Gamble that we had talked about in an earlier episode too. So if anyone hadn't listened, so Clarence Gamble, um, future heir and um, owner of Procter and Gamble was heavily involved. He was a eugenicist and he was very involved in multiple places. So he did stuff in the United States, but he also did stuff in uh, in other international places like Egypt and um, African countries and Haiti, like all over the place. He was spreading his eugenicist crap. Um, but Puerto Rico was one of the main places that he was involved hmm. in. He would fly um, Puerto Rican doctors to New York for them to learn sterilization procedures, and then go back to. Puerto Rico and perform these sterilizations on women there. And a lot of them were the women who were working in these factories. Most of the time, these women didn't understand the permanence of these procedures. (sighs) They weren't adequately consented as they should have been.
1: I've just been haunted by the last episode where you talked about all the forced forced sterilizations and unknown sterilizations that were conducted On women, in particular, in California, what you talked about—that just is going to haunt me for a really, really long time. So,
0: just I'll just add Puerto Rico to that. Add Puerto Rico to that, and in a huge, 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 huge way, because um, by 1960, it was estimated that one third of Puerto Rican women had been sterilized. What? One third had been surgically sterilized, (sighs) which is. Crazy, like
1: I know. I'm trying really hard to not use ableist language to describe things. I I didn't think think that, but saying crazy, (laughs) no, but I I almost think it is appropriate. Like it does, it does just boggle your mind and seem like so beyond anything within the bounds of of sanity. I don't know. I, I mean, it's just so horrible. It's so horrible to. Try to wrap your mind around. Well, so, and a lot okay. of it just okay.
0: seems so manipulative in a way because they also went out into the rural communities and would send nurses into homes, which a lot of the women out there would be very happy to have a visiting nurse come out and help them and like teach mm-hmm. them things. And they would go see new mothers and like help them take care of their babies and learn better ways to take care of them. But then at the end, like slip in, let's do some form of birth control or let's get you sterilized or you need to do this. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I think we have to look at that in a lot of the programs that we do currently, too. It's like how Mm -hmm. much of it is good intentioned and how much of it just has these really nefarious underlying Mm -hmm. sorts of things going on with them. Because clearly.
1: That's what I think is. Super complicated about this topic because there may have been some women who were really grateful to have some form of birth control and to be able to have some sort of say. Like I'm, I'm sure it, it's just this double-edged sword of art. That's I don't know if that's the right metaphor, but to think about the liberatory potential of birth control is very real yeah. mm-hmm. for women, and in the wrong hands and used in the wrong way, like nefarious ways, like you're saying, it it can veer into eugenics so Mm -hmm. quickly, especially, I just think the red flags for me, it's not to say that rural Puerto Rican women wouldn't want to have fewer children or control when they have kids. They very well may want to. It just seems like the giant red flags here are rich white dude (laughs) funding the control of populations of poor brown women, just as like Ring, yeah. ring ring like it should just set off alarm bells, even if there are clearly women who fully, you know, educated about the consequences would choose it. There's just something really icky and yeah. gross about the whole scene. Yeah. And especially while they're while they're simultaneously not having that information go to other kinds of women in other right. places like that. It just, uh, just smacks of hypocrisy. So it's like, mm, you don't really want
0: women to control their bodies. Right. You, that's not what no. this is about. And I think that point that you brought up about the benefits to white women in the United States, it is really important to look at especially for this part about birth control, okay. because like the, the pill. pill, yeah. Talking about the pill birth control. Uh-huh. Okay. I think most of us who would have categorized ourselves or still categorize ourselves as feminists in the United States would look at birth control and our access to birth control as extremely important to where we are today. And a million percent is like, I'm very grateful for that access to birth control that I had to control my choices in life, who knows where things would be. And I think most of us feel that way, you know, I mean, Yes, I would if I trusted myself to take it on time, and I definitely (laughs) don't. I am the most
1: irresponsible, flaky person. I I'm with you. And no, but I'm glad it exists, and I totally think for 99% of the population who are, like, adult women who can remember (laughs) things, yes, I am not in that
0: population. No, I mean.
1: (laughs) Other forms of birth control have helped, but
0: no, Yeah, no. But it's an incredible invention. I mean, it's it's had a huge impact. I think what most of us do not know is the expense of getting to that point, like who paid the price to get us to the point of having access to the birth control (laughs) pill. And I don't think anybody who isn't, you know, maybe in this realm of things who hasn't done this research as an academic or um, indigenous health rights would, would know any of this because the reason we have (laughs) the pill today is because of indigenous women in Puerto Rico. So, The pill um, was basically created um, by a doctor in the United States, um, Dr. Gregory Pincus. And this was in the early 1950s. So he first tested it on a group of women in Massachusetts that were in a state psych hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts, and they gave them to women Mm. who were diagnosed with chronic psychotic conditions. And then later they would go to surgery and like inspect their uteruses through invasive surgeries to see the effects. I don't really know what effects you'd look at on the uterus itself, but it's one Mm. of the things they did, but they could only do that small scale and at this psychiatric facility. So one starts with testing on psychiatric patients, which is totally, totally totally bad bad. (laughs) anyway. Because the consent issues there too, like what, right, totally. But it worked, yeah. and so, but they needed larger scale trials to be able to start actually per, uh, making it and marketing it, and they couldn't do them in the United States because of the consent issues, because of the basic the social mores in the U.S. there about birth control in general, and so they decided um on Puerto Rico as the perfect place for this to be tested. So there was the doctor um who is the one who invented it. And then a physician, Dr. John Rock, who then teamed up with Margaret Sanger at the time. um, mm-hmm. Our old friend, Margaret, mm-hmm. who we talked about in the very beginning mm-hmm. of this, who was also mm-hmm. a suffragist, who then mm-hmm. got funding from another prominent philanthropist and suffragist, Catherine McCormick so katherine mccormick i looked her up was very very wealthy oh, like the like the
1: reapers like mccormick like farm i don't know is that what it I don't was know where that I think, came from oh, well, yeah. I'll look at I'll you look can look, look
0: that up too. so okay. her, her husband is where she got all the money from i don't remember where it said her his family's money c- came from but she inherited it all when he passed There's a bunch of interesting stuff behind that, but she was very close friends with Margaret Sanger. And so when she passed and she came into all this money, she contacted Margaret and said, what can I use this for? Do you need this for anything? And she said, yes, let's go test birth control pills in Puerto Rico. And so Catherine Sanger or Catherine McCormick ended up over time giving $2 million to this funding for birth control testing in Puerto Rico, which in today's money equates to about $23 million to do testing wow. in Puerto Rico. And I also tried to look up and see if Catherine had ever had any published works speaking specifically about eugenics, because we know how um, much yeah. Margaret did. Um, I didn't yeah. find anything specifically that she had written or said, but there are letters from Margaret to Catherine where Margaret is talking extensively about Eugenics uh-huh. and birth control being used. So she knew. So clearly, Catherine knows what yeah, her money's funding. She knew what was happening yeah. at the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Catherine McCormick, there's a lot of other really amazing and great things about her. She was the second woman to graduate from MIT. And then she funded mm-hmm. like women's dormitories at MIT so that more women could go there because mm-hmm. initially women weren't allowed to live on campus. And so only women that lived locally could actually go there and so to expand women being able to attend MIT she built women's dormitories so she's she contributed a lot with her money but her money was involved Mm. in these trials um so they started this experimentation with the pill in Puerto Rico it was called Enovid E-N-O-V-I-D and the amount of hormone in this for these first trials was more than 10 times the amount of hormone that has been found to be safe in birth control pills now, um, but they started going to these clinics that were already established. They also just started going door to door, telling women about this birth control, and a lot of the t- most of the time, they had no idea that it was an experimental drug. They were told that it was safe. And that they could take it to control their family size. And so they accepted that coming from these American doctors and nurses coming around and knocking on their doors um, and started to take the birth control pills. There was also a pre-trial um, mm-hmm. before they gave it to indigenous women that involved 20 female students at the University of Puerto Rico. And they gave them the birth control and then later collected tissues from their ovaries. But Mm -hmm. a lot of those uh, medical students at the university pulled out of the study because of the side effects of such high doses of hormones. They would get nauseous, dizzy. Mm -hmm. um, They would have headaches. There were blood clots that happened because of them. But they still went on even with those side effects and gave them to women um, across the country in Puerto Rico. And when those women started complaining of the same side effects and ailments, the researchers said that they were psychosomatic side effects. Like it was just (laughs) women being women (laughs) and, and they, but we all know now, of course that hormones can absolutely have that effect on them. Um, so all in all, I think there Mm -hmm. were 1500, roughly 1500 women, um, that were used in these trials to fine tune what would become formally the birth control pill in the United States. And most of them under no consent, very little consent, had no ideas the dangers of them during the trials. Um, three women actually passed away, but they never did autopsies. So they don't really know.
1: It was probably psychosomatic. It was
0: definitely something else, but not because they were taking gigantic Mm -hmm. doses of hormones and probably had blood clots in their lungs or something. Um, And then after the fact, the women who were involved in the trials, of course, never received any monetary compensation for being part of trials. Mm -hmm. Um, They, and then once it was marketed and once it was being distributed they then couldn't even access it to use as birth control because it cost about $11 a month for the price of birth control. So once they were no longer being used as guinea pigs, they didn't even have access to it in their actual lives. It just got given to women who then didn't have to pay any of the price of it. So There were also a couple other women that I was going to mention. And I Mm -hmm. didn't, or actually one. I also looked her up because I was like, ooh, anytime there's a white woman involved in this, let's see what their background (laughs) is. Petty detective on the case. We can find it out. So for Catherine McCormick, she was the one who was funding it. Don't know a lot about her eugenic feelings, Mm -hmm. but she definitely knew that that was the background of it. But then um, there was a woman very involved in the clinical trials who was Edris. Rice Ray Carson. So she actually headed one of the, she was a physician at Northwestern University. Um, She was involved in public health and then she was a faculty member at the Puerto Rico Medical School and was the medical director of the Puerto Rico Family Planning Association. So when Clarence Gamble and Margaret Sanger came together to start this, she was um, immediately involved in all of it she was kind of supervising the experiments um, and supervising the women who were enrolled in the trials. She brought up a lot of the problematic side effects from the dosage of the early pill and raised them to Dr. Rock and Dr. Pincus who then just brushed her off. Um, But I didn't find anything further about whether or not she had any of these eugenic ideas either. So there's another great resource that you sent me. It's very, very in depth. So if anyone has time and to I, go through honestly, it, it's actually great.
1: It's so good. It's a master's thesis. And it really, like, I read it just super humbled. Like, this is so good. I know. For I was like, masters. masters.
0: Really, I really, really good. I never wrote anything like this for any of my master's.
1: <laughs> no, it was beautifully <laughs> written. And and I just so appreciated it's by Bianca Noel Martinez. It's her master's thesis at the university of San Diego. And I thought the fact that she really wanted to focus not on the trauma of everything that you've been talking about today, but mm-hmm. the resilience and the strength and the survival of Puerto Rican women, both on the Island and in New York. And that it's her family that she's talking about too her mom, her aunt, Um, you know, that she's got really deep personal connections and, Um, yeah, I, I just thought it was great. So yeah,
0: let's get into that one too. Yeah. Um, so one of the main terms that she used throughout this paper that I think it's really important to bring out is the term of constrained choice, which Mm -hmm. she says comes from another author who wrote, um, on this topic, Iris Lopez. Um, and, the interesting thing about constrained choice, because she talks about how a lot of other research talks about the coercion involved in this mm-hmm. and that it's not as simple in the case of Puerto Rican women as just straightforward coercion. Although a lot of them were not given appropriate cons- informed consent, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um They were looking for choices to control their reproductive freedom. Like they were in situations where they wanted something um, that would allow them to either time their reproduction better or limit their reproduction. Um, and it was really just a matter of not having all the choices or not being offered all the choices or explained them, but not that they necessarily didn't want them. There, There was a study done at some point afterwards that showed that a lot of the women who were sterilized in Puerto Rico were not unhappy about it afterwards. They didn't regret right having had it done. So I think that's an important point to bring up. I mean, as different well. than a lot of the other women that
1: you were teaching us about a couple of weeks ago, who either didn't know at all, or were told, you know, like Fanny Lou Hamer, like, oh, you're, <laughs> you're giving you an appendectomy. Right. Or, you know, like, we're doing this other procedure, and then like, lo and behold, oh, it was actually a sterilization. So it just like all the history that we're learning about, I just think it's fascinating how nuanced it all gets and how complex it all gets, that mm-hmm. there are these bigger, huge troubling concerns. And when you start to poke at it, it it still is troubling. Like I don't I don't think that even if women don't regret it, I don't think like, oh, so there's nothing to see here. Everything in Puerto Rico was awesome. And and Bianca Noel Martinez's thesis and the historians that she's citing, I don't think any of them would say that either, but it's just distinct. It's just unique to these women in this particular time, in this particular place. Something we haven't talked about yet today that I think also she brings up is the role of Catholicism in connection Mm -hmm. to capitalism and colonialism and that just being like the triple c's like (laughs) very toxic combination of things and and i i'm wondering in everything you read and we're learning about what came up for you about the like catholic side of this as someone raised catholic i can tell you my experiences with like sex ed and reproductive rights it's going to take me Two seconds mm-hmm. big fat nothing <laughs> like i but i'm wondering what you saw or read or learned about that had to do with the catholicism side of it
0: yeah so the it's brought bianca brings up that catholicism had large influence um in the choices that were offered to women again this constrained choice that they were given mm-hmm. um because a lot of forms of birth control were seen as abortive in nature mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so therefore were not approved by the Catholic Church but for some reason sterilization since it stops any sort of like i guess release or meeting of the egg or the sperm <laughs> is therefore not really considered um against the constraints of Catholicism, I mean, but I don't know if be, that's still true. Is I don't that know so true? And
1: mm-hmm. Let's be clear that there's a lot of mental gymnastics that happen in Catholic teachings around like the body. Yeah, I mean, even, clearly. even in terms of like divorce, you know, you can get an annulment that's like, Oh, you were never actually married every, you know, of course you were actually married. There's just a lot of mm-hmm. like backflips that can be done in the bureaucratic side of things for the church. Um, I don't, th- I don't know because I don't, I think actually right now, I don't know that this, like when this would have changed, but like to have a vasectomy or something like that is actually not cool. Like you're supposed to just like let it happen and then, and maybe do the rhythm method. Like that's Mm -hmm. okay. Thumbs up to that. Not great way to prevent having Mm -hmm. children. Um, but I don't know. I mean, and in my mind too, I'm thinking about the ways that at this time, like in the 20s and the 30s and the role that, the church like in some way you know the church is so fascinating because there are these like super lefty like radical Liberation theology Catholics and mm-hmm, then there are mm-hmm. the opposite of that so it's hard to say probably both were in the mix in Puerto Rico I don't know but it it doesn't surprise me like there's so much squeamishness and even for like women being raised Catholic to to like know anything about your body or to like touch yourself in order to yeah. do things especially in the 20s and 30s I would imagine would be like So against your cultural values and mores, like it
0: makes me uncomfortable and I don't even go to mass anymore, you know? (laughs) Well, Uh, that was one of the other points that was brought up by one of the other women who was leading the research. We talked about Edris, right, Ray? uh Uh-huh. She had multiple last names, but I think it was for two of them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah, She yes.
0: was, she was, um, kind of in charge on the ground in Puerto Rico. And there was another woman that gets mentioned, um, in some of the letters and correspondence about the research done with Clarence Gamble. Her name was Adeline Pendleton Satterwaith. And she was on the island working in family planning prior to research on the pill. And she, I had been surprised that so many women had come in requesting sterilization which is a surgical procedure for family planning control mm-hmm. rather than the other methods that were available at that time like the mm-hmm. diaphragm um or the spermicide foam mm-hmm. and the reason that she cited for that was exactly what you said, like the women's hesitance to do anything involved with touching their body. So Mm. they didn't want to use a form where they had to like touch themselves. Get up
1: in there. Yeah.
0: Did not want to use that. Um, (laughs) I mean, like, I've also heard some older women that I know say that when they hear about the younger generation now in menstrual products, like women who use de- the little cups, oh, like, diva cups. Yeah. Um, and the diva cups and other like yeah. soft cups and stuff yeah. who have just been like horrified that we would use stuff <laughs> like that. Like, that's so disgusting. You have to take it out and like dump your own blood out and clean it. And that's so gross. <laughs> it's just like, oh my gosh, it, cultural so stuff involved cultural in women's and, bodies
1: and generational is crazy for sure oh this is getting to be like way tmi but like you thinking about <laughs> yeah. pubic hair like i there are huge generational divides in terms oh, yeah. of like what to do with pubic hair yeah. i don't know i yeah. just think it's fascinating it's the, there's a lot like of shame around bodies yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah well especially um, women's bodies yeah
0: yeah the other thing the other form of birth control that was around then that was also mentioned was condoms. And mm-hmm. they also said that women were reluctant to use condoms because condoms were associated with prostitutes.
1: Oh god. And so
0: then oh. they didn't want to use those. So there are so many reasons when you try think about it simplistically and you're just like, right. well, why didn't they do X, Y, or B? Right. You right. know, it's like I mean, X, y, y, or B. Or B. <laughs> it's more, it's, it's I mean, that's my new favorite thing to say. Uh, No, I
1: think, I mean, this is hopefully what people are taking away from all of this is there's nothing that we're trying to do to say, like, let's knock down these people and then put these people on pedestals and not question anything. Like, that's not the point of what we're trying to learn about. It's like, let's learn about all the intricacies and nuances. And I think especially as white women and white women who, are committed to feminism and justice and, you know, anti-racism, et cetera, that understanding the nuances is super, super important because otherwise you just start to think like (laughs) X, Y, and B, this is how it is. (laughs) And like, this is how it is for everybody. Instead of thinking like, no, it's different for people in different situations, but we can all be in solidarity with each other. We just have to listen and we have to learn and we have to ask questions and understand why people might make the decisions they're making and, and whether they want to make those decisions or if they're really constrained choices and they would rather not have it be so constrained. You know, I, yeah. I really, I think this particular case is so, so
0: interesting. Um, yeah. there's, there's a letter you wanted to read at the beginning. Yes.
1: Well, because. Paper. Yeah, yeah, there's, um, this was actually initially I was like mandate. I gave you, I was very bossy. I think (laughs) I said, you need to teach us about Puerto Rico because I had stumbled across an article that had mentioned this letter and, and some of the, like, all I knew was that there was some connection between how the birth control pill got invented and the letter. Um, oh, by the way, before I forget, I, I know there was also something about North Carolina that you'd wanted to talk about and operation it's kind of yes okay so why don't you talk about those first this is such a hodgepodge but yes go
0: so north carolina is where clarence Campbell i think started some research on birth control before they went to haiti like he had a bunch of clinics that were over there as well Mm -hmm. um i didn't get into a lot of it but um they were doing some research on poor women in that area to start with. And that's where he kind of just got all of his, uh, what do you call it? Blueprints, I guess for these clinics plans. and Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, I remember seeing um, something that had talked about how they were trying to convince doctors at clinics in North Carolina to invest in birth control or to like think about birth control and that they weren't interested until they gave eugenic arguments like, well, these black women are having lots of kids. And suddenly the white doctors were like,
0: Ooh, good point. Let's yep. learn about birth control. <laughs> so the, again, just like the ways that these are all layered together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were two, yeah, two other things with Puerto Rico that I meant to bring up and just mention. Um, we talked about the like economic. Quote unquote investment that the United States was trying to make to bring, um, Puerto Rico from an agrarian society to more of an industrial society. But it actually had a term there was a, which is a term that I despise because of what it, but it's called operation bootstrap. The whole, I, this whole. I can't believe it was literally called
1: that. (laughs) It (laughs) It was
0: literally called that, but it wasn't, I loved something that I read that was like, it wasn't coming like the people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. It was like corporations getting handouts and bootstrapping mm-hmm. them because it didn't help the people at all. It right. just ended up helping corporations. Like we said, they were given tax incentives and all sorts of things um, to come into the country and just basically take over more of the economy. I mean, mm-hmm. they didn't, they didn't uplift the people of Puerto Rico a whole lot. Um, and then a correction that I had about something that I said, um, about it, not really helping with the family size or the population oh, right. boom that was in Puerto Rico. Another thing I read said that actually wasn't true at all. It, it really did drop birth rates mm-hmm. a lot to the point where at some, mm-hmm. um, areas and neighborhoods, they had to close entire like schools and, um, childcare centers cause there just weren't any more kids to go to them. So it oh, may have no, had an impact no. on things in that, in that way.
1: Well, we're going to link to a gazillion things so people can go down these rabbit holes. And and especially to Bianca Noel Martinez's master's thesis, because it is so fascinating. And even the parts just about Puerto Rican history in general, like that made me want to do like another episode just on that, because learning about like the politics of it and the you know about the national party and the activism to try to gain independence like all of it is just super fascinating so yeah and there's also one more link
0: we'll put um, for people who just want to watch something quick in 1982 there was a documentary done um, on sterilization on the island called La Operación and it's only like a 40 minute documentary and it's another one of those things where they talk firsthand to a lot of the women which I think is always is great to listen to Um, and get that history from them.
1: So so just the last couple of things I have, it is to kind of circle back to how this whole conversation for you and I started, I was bossy pants and I told (sighs) you I'd seen something about Puerto Rico and birth control and eugenics. And I was like, Ooh, that you, you know, please learn about that for this season. Um, And it was because uh, there was this scandal back in the thirties from this doctor that was working in Puerto Rico, um, Cornelius Packard, AKA dusty Rhodes, Mm -hmm. last name. Rhodes, who was a pathologist, oncologist, and hospital administrator who has a very uh, just kind of gross background. Um, And ultimately, in the, I don't know, was it in the 2000s, like early 2000s? He ended up, he was long since passed away, but uh, there were, there was like an award named for him and there was a, a commission that looked into whether we should be using him as a namesake for anything and they determined no mm-hmm. and it has to do with this Puerto Rico connection Um, mm-hmm. that he was actually the first director of the Sloan Kettering Institute which is a really famous cancer center in New York and mm-hmm. actually had been part of was like super hooked up with the Rockefeller Foundation that had funded a lot of this research and some of this research is like working for the US military to develop chemical weapons and research on mustard gas was helped helped learn about chemotherapy. I mean, there's just a lot of like, blah, oof, just tough stuff. Um mm-hmm. But he was working in Puerto Rico and he wrote this letter that became super infamous because one of the Puerto Rican nationalist leaders got a hold of it and publicized it. And then it, it be- went viral like 1930s style. And then the US government really covered it up and backed up roads. And it, it just is like another kind of classic example of gaslighting really. But I'm uh-huh. I, I uh-huh. think reading the letter it so sums up like the general vibe in Puerto Rico at the time. So yeah. he's writing it. He was doing um clinical research on anemia actually, but I do think he was involved in some of the birth control stuff. Like um yeah, some of these other kind of experiments. And this was in 1931. He wrote this letter um <sighs> to a friend in the U at like the New York, I think in in the U.S. So it yeah. says, "Dear Ferdy." the more I think about the Larry Smith appointment, the more disgusted I get. Have you heard any reason in advance for it? I don't even know what this is about. It's like hot gossip. It certainly is odd Mm -hmm. that a man out with the entire Boston group, fired by Wallach, and as far as I know, absolutely devoid of any scientific reputation, should be given the place. There's something wrong somewhere with our point of view. I truly think he's just, like, gossiping about someone getting promoted that he doesn't like. The situation is settled in Boston. Parker and I are to run the laboratory together and either Kenneth or McMahon to be assistant, the chief to stay on. As far as I can see, the chances of my getting a job in the Next ten years are absolutely nil. One is certainly not encouraged to make scientific advances when it is a handicap rather than an aid to advancement. I can get a damn fine job here and am tempted to take it. It would be ideal, except for the Puerto Ricans. They are beyond doubt the dirtiest, laziest, most degenerate, and thievish race of men ever inhabiting this sphere. It makes you sick to inhabit the same island with them. They are even lower than Italians. What the island needs is not public health work, but a tidal wave or something to totally exterminate the population. It might then be livable. I feel gross even reading Mm, this out loud. uh I have done uh my best to further the process of extermination by killing off eight and transplanting cancer into several more. The latter has not resulted in any fatalities so far. The matter of consideration for the patient's welfare plays no role here. In fact, all (laughs) physicians take delight in the abuse and torture of the unfortunate subjects do let me know if you hear any more news sincerely dusty and so this like horrific <laughs> letter circulates and it honestly it just sounded so much like the way people in power get caught out showing their true colors like mm-hmm. of course he was mm-hmm. like i was just kidding like that was oh, yeah. his, I excuse. Loved his
0: excuse later is that it was just it was a fantastical and playful composition entirely <laughs> Of my own diversion, he yes. said, I was Like what? This was just a so, fun little pretend letter you were sending. I know so is, many men who sit around and write pretend correspondence <laughs> pre- to pretend their buddies. <laughs> <meal>? Pretend hate mail. Pretend hate mail. What? <laughs> right.
1: Well, and there were these investigations that tried to see what he meant by saying he had transplanted cancer to people, and and there were a couple different investigations that couldn't really figure that out. But in the early two thousands, they determined it doesn't even matter. Like, that's a heinous letter that clearly indicates kind of what you were saying with, like, the woman who was funding Margaret Sanger. And, like, it's Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. this stuff is out there. People know what you actually think. And so God knows what else is actually happening. And and they stripped his name from this award. But this was a prestigious medical doctor and director Mm -hmm. of different institutes and programs. And I don't know. I just thought that that sets the tone for just what the context was like in terms of the relationship of us medical fancy pants people and Mm -hmm. Puerto Rican people. So not, not a fan. I mean, you can understand why in Puerto Rico, then, you know, like trusting the government or trusting medical professionals would be difficult when something like that comes out. Um, anyway, we will link to all of that also. The last thing I wanted to, to suggest, and I hope that you are okay mm-hmm. with this,
0: mm-hmm. Bianca
1: Noel Martinez had mentioned, um, in her lit review, we need to like find her email somehow because it just, I want to say thank you for this work. She yeah. did. It's so great. Um, but she shouts out this book by historian Jennifer Nelson, who is a professor at the University of Redlands and is an expert in women's history, medical history, um, with specifically looking at reproductive justice and sexual rights. And mm-hmm. she wrote a book um, called women of color and the reproductive rights movement. And I'll just read the little summary to you to see if you think we could do a book club. So yeah. let's see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, most people believe that the movement to secure voluntary reproductive control for women centered solely on abortion rights for many women. Abortion was not the only or even primary focus, which even that first sentence in the description made me think of suffrage and, and, mm-hmm. The way that Susan B and Carrie Chapman cat were like very, very focused on the right to vote. And a lot of other women, especially women of color were like, I don't, I don't want to get thrown off public transportation. Like there are lots of other issues that matter more to me right now. But yep. it, it was like white feminists, like single focus, right to vote, right to vote, right to vote. Jennifer Nelson tells the story of the feminist struggle for legal abortion and reproductive rights in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s through the particular contributions of women of color. She explores the relationship between second-wave feminists who are concerned with the women's right to choose, Black and Puerto Rican nationalists who were concerned that Black and Puerto Rican women have as many children as possible for the revolution, and women of color themselves who negotiated between them. Contrary to popular belief, Nelson shows that women of color were able to successfully remake the mainstream women's liberation and abortion rights movements by appropriating select aspects of black nationalist politics including addressing sterilization abuse access to affordable childcare and healthcare and ways to raise children out of poverty for feminist discourse so yeah would you like to yeah i
0: think that do would be this? very interesting yeah
1: okay great let's um, do it let's do it okay i'm ordering it right now and then maybe that's a good way to wrap up this season is i, I really liked uh ending our suffrage season on highlighting women of color that were just incredible um, activists and Uh i think that's a nice way to wrap up this season as well okay cool sounds
0: lovely thanks for joining again
1: guys yeah and as always uh subscribe like and if you have any ideas or suggestions or other research we get um you know people are reaching out to to share resources with us all the time so yeah. send us an email
0: katie at com, k-a-t-y or and then mandy m-a-n-d-y at ourdirtylaundrypodcast.com or on instagram too i've gotten a few messages from people yeah over the past couple of episodes so yes send us some messages thanks everybody thanks for listening